Hi there, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Uh, I'm between trips. Gosh, this is all so retro. Um, last week I was in Amman. Next week I'm in Nairobi. Both of them pilot meetings for this new uh, training program I'm running uh, with a group of people from the LSE and elsewhere. Uh, trying to train senior aid people at national level in to sharpen up their influencing skills. Amman was great. Um, fantastic group of uh, 25 participants. Hopefully uh, Nairobi will be just as good. And although air travel is a nightmare and the paperwork is horrible and the guilt is worse than it was in terms of um, carbon emissions, um, just being in a room with people from you know so many different places and countries and backgrounds is very, very exciting. So looking forward to that. So because of that, I had a shortened uh, run of posts this week. So this this roundup may be a bit shorter than usual. So we started off with a guest post by Naomi Hussain and Pater Scott Villiers on 21st century food riots. Naomi's been working on food riots for many years. I did some work with her in the early 2010s. And she got in touch, or I think I got in touch with her to say, OK, we're having a big food price spike. What can we expect? And she and Pata came up, uh, who works at the IDS, Institute for Development Studies. Naomi's now at the American University. Uh, they came up with a nice post, so I'll read out the main points. So in March, the FAO's global price, food price index jumped by 17% to a level unprecedented in its 30-year history. The food riots predicted by the head of the World Trade Organization have already kicked off in Sri Lanka and Indonesia. Deadly fuel riots in Peru, rising discontent in Kenya, and the rising price of bread in Egypt signal that 2022 could witness a global food crisis on the scale of the 2008-11 shock. So what do we know about food riots in the 21st century? Point one, food riot is a handy but inaccurate label. The history of capitalism is one of people coming together to protest sharp rises in the cost of essentials. We use the handy label of food riots because we recognise in these moments a basic similarity of aim and form across time and place. But protests usually only turn violent and unruly when the state responds heavy-handedly, triggering rounds of protests that can then spread across a country or a region. That is, they often start as peaceful protests, with the riot element introduced by the state. Nor are food riots merely the angry response of hungry men to deprivation. They are political complaints about how the economy is run and for whose benefit. This is why states often respond harshly, as though the cry for fairness were an insurrection. Such fears are not unfounded. Historically, revolutions rally supporters when masses of poor people, exasperated, have felt unheard. Food riots are often also about costs of energy, transport and water. They are always fueled by righteous anger about economic mismanagement and political corruption and what that means for everyday life. The label persists because the media plays an important part in how such events are labelled and framed and whether or not they have political impact. Second big point, food riots are rare. People mostly cope and complain. If people rioted whenever they were hungry or saw the cost of provisioning rise sharply, as many millions more have since COVID-19, food riots would be daily and worldwide. Economists are sometimes puzzled by how much most people hate inflation. They respond that wages are just as if that solves the problem, without recognising the dangerous and uncertain struggles people face to bid their wages up when they can no longer afford to eat. People do find ways of adjusting to higher costs of living. They have no choice, but they do so in ways that lessen their well-being, 
cause physical and mental stress, damage the social fabric and breed popular discontent. Many protests are triggered by sudden sharp rises from policies, often subsidy cuts or tax rises. People protest not their def deprivation, but specific political actions that deprive them of basic provisioning at precisely those moments when they expect public authorities to protect them. We call these expectations the moral economy. They reflect how people believe markets should be run and for whose benefit. They argue that governments should protect people against shocks to their basic standard of living and that there are moral limits to profit making in periods of dearth. Moral economy, moral economy thinking arms protesters with a political theory that has broad political popular support. Third point, food riots are organised but they still reflect genuine anger. Food riots are seldom purely spontaneous. It is rare that thousands of people suddenly descend to the plaza or main square in a viral wave of anger. Ordinary folk often join en masse, but these are typically organised events with community groups, leftist parties, social movements, trade unions, the political opposition and civil society groups in the mix. But ruling elites customary claims that food riots are instigated by outsiders or partisan opponents usually fail the evidence test. <clears throat> Journalists and researchers who investigate protests tend to find that it is in fact righteous anger that gives protests their power. Protests take great risks and fear of state violence often stops or curtails protests. In Mozambique, the tanks that the state had deployed to, depress, uh, to repress the food and fuel rights of 2008 were still in, price when prices were still in place when prices rose again in 2010 and 2012. Remembering that people were killed or arrested in 2008, many stayed home even though prices shot sharply out of reach. Fourth point, food riots diagnose corruption and collusion. Food riots are not merely demands for fairer prices. They encode a political economic theory about why prices are out of control and why their political leaders fail to act to, to manage them. These include accusations about hoarding and price gouging in grain trade and the political elites are in cahoots with business elites. A French gilet jaune protester explained it. People are exasperated. There is so much anger. Taxes are going up. Our salaries aren't. When you work hard, it feels unfair. The government isn't listening. To me, Macron is the president of the rich, slashing taxes for the wealthy, ignoring the rest of us. Politicians are cut off from our lives. Those in charge are one big oligarchy. Fifth point, no food riots, no problem. If countries escape food riots in any sense of that term, does that mean all is well? Not necessarily. It may mean that mass protests did not ignite for any of the reasons collective action ordinarily fails. What remains is a deep-seated resentment at the unfair distribution of protection. When people's everyday lives are squeezed and political corruption and elite collusion for profit is evident, an absence of food riots may not mean resolution, but a festering discontent. It just means the political opportunity has yet to present itself. War in Ukraine and associated sanctions coming at a time of rapid post-COVID inflation has driven up food and fuel prices. Unrest in Sri Lanka, Pakistan and Peru highlights the risks. Sri Lankan protests over blackouts and shortages of food, fuel and medicine express mounting public anger over government economic mismanagement. Peru's embattled president 
has declared a state of emergency after protests against food, fuel and fertiliser prices. Pakistan's Prime Minister has lost political support and been forced to resign in the face of double-digit inflation. Political incumbents worldwide are rightly nervous. <clears throat> so I thought that was a really good backgrounder from Naomi and Pata. Next post. So this was me having a rant. I got back from um, Amman and sort of went through my backlog of posts and links and so on. And I got a bit exercised about the state of UK aid. You know, for years, UK aid seemed to defy political gravity, carried on, you know, high, uh, high levels, sticking to the 0.7% promise. And in the last two years, it's, 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 it's imploded and it's incredibly depressing. So here's me having a rant. Two sets of contrasting provisional stats for 2021 were published while I was away. The UK's provisional statistics on international development and the OECD Development Assistance Committee preliminary ODA overseas development assistance levels. According to a withering analysis by BOMS, the British Development NGO network, the UK government's insistence on cutting the aid budget from 0.7% of gross national income to 0.5% amounted to a £4.6 billion cut in aid in the middle of a pandemic. And the way it was cut made it much, much worse. A quote from Bond, cutting the budget by this much with so little notice, including cuts to existing programmes, undermines value for money, reduces transparency and disproportionately harms the most marginalised communities. And yeah, hidden away in the small print of the uh, OECD stats was... Uh, United Kingdom percentage change from 2020 to 2021 minus 21% in its aid spend when the global figure went up by 4.4% and the you know, almost no other major donors in fact no other major donors except Netherlands had a minus figure you know so that was pretty damn depressing according to an analysis in DevEx in 2021 Aid spending, this is UK aid spending to the African continent was cut by 39% from 2.2 billion to, to 1.4 billion and spending in Asia was cut by 32%. Two government departments were merged to create the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO, but it appears that their portfolios didn't wear the aid cuts equally. The figures showed country-specific bilateral funding, formerly under DFID's portfolio, bore the brunt of the cuts while most areas formerly under the FCO, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, saw increases, as did spending within the UK by the Home and Cabinet Offices. And that's according to Richard Watts at, the, at Save the Children UK. So, for example, aid spending which went to the Home Office for things like refugees doubled over the previous year. Um, so there we have it. UK aid took 20 plus painstaking years to create building a global reputation for thoughtful cooperation, largely free from the politicisation of previous years. Now it has been taken apart in a matter of months, hacking away at aid lifelines in order to hit the targets for cuts, shoveling money out the door to other government departments, dumping unwanted COVID vaccines and charging them to the aid budget. Not surprising then that so many diffid, former DFID staff have left. The abandonment of the former DFID offices compounded the sense of collapse. A couple of flimsy straws to clutch at, despite lots of concern that the UK would use the aid budget to fund the horrible new Rwanda asylum proposal, 
DevX reported that a Home Office spokesperson indicated that the aid budget is not going to be used for that. Secondly, non-government aspects of the UK development complex are more or less intact. All the world's top five university international development departments uh, are in the UK, according to the latest global ranking and my own, LSE, came fourth. Uh, congratulations to the Institute of Development Studies in Sussex, which came first. Similarly, big influential NGOs and think tanks are still firing on all cylinders. But I do worry that a lot of this revolved around DFID FCDO and may start to wither on the vine. Now the ideas and the funding have gone into freefall. The surge in incompetence and miserliness in London contrasts with increased generosity of the rest of the world. Aid increased in 23 out of the 29 donors covered by OECD figures and global aid spending rose by 4.4% to $179 billion. Despite all the competing domestic demands of the pandemic, really an astonishing achievement. Looking forward, the panorama, the panorama is, if anything, even more depressing. Food prices surging around the world, see previous post, due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a growing climate emergency, massive new refugees flows, and a horribly underfunded emergency response in the Horn of Africa. The UN Somalia appeal has only raised 4% of the money it needs. And then in the middle of all this, UK aid is missing in action. Not a good time to be a Brit. So the last post of the week, I actually look elsewhere because depressed by the state of the UK aid, I'm interested in um, you know, other aid donors who are doing a bit more, who are thinking a bit more positively. And I came across a paper by Larry Garber, Gretchen King and Karen Hirschfield looking at a series of innovations at USAID um, uh, who have been doing interesting stuff while the UK has been falling apart. Um, they use a lot of aid speak. That is, that's the terrain, I guess. But they looked at four USAID programs, engaging new and non-traditional actors via the New Partnerships Initiative, convening power, integrated program, uh, integrated programming, um, and co-creation. Well, um, they looked at how the new approaches were written, understood, and implemented. So they looked at you know what was written on the paper how staff at USAID understood them, how they implemented them. The big gap, as far as I can see, is they didn't talk to local organisations, still less locally affected populations, about whether these new initiatives were actually an improvement on what went before. So that seems like a bit, bit of a hole, but never mind. Because what they found was also really interesting. A serious bout of what I call initiative-itis, you know, that USAID staff on the ground are constantly subjected to a blizzard of new ideas, new concepts, new language, new toolkits, new procedures. Taken individually, each new approach may well be an improvement on business as usual. But what about when there are loads of them? Unsurprisingly, it doesn't always end well. And uh, you know, here's what some stuff from the report with occasional comment from me. On the plus side, the team identified some enabling factors across all approaches. These include interest and flexibility by technical and support teams, the resources to recruit, recruit and train foreign service nationals that understand the local context, culture and languages. Additionally, the study found that the socio-political context in the host country also plays a major, major role in a mission's ability or interest in using one or many of the approaches. So my shorthand version is, this, is that local staff know more than fly-in, fly-out expats and that context matters. Well, duh. Um, and then the team also identified several barriers. These include the proliferation of approaches and the policy guidance that accompanies them. 
which challenge field staff to determine what is a priority and what is not. The field also struggles with the use of one size fits all, or in this case, I guess, four size fits all, because there are four approaches, uh, guidance that suggests an approach will work similarly in nearly all contexts, when the reality is that the efficacy of a particular approach is quite context specific. So, you know, in sum, this is a conclusion, the team, the, the, the research highlight, highlighted the dissonance between USAID's commitment to being a policy driven agency and the day to day realities faced by mission staff who must understand, internalize and apply multiple Washington headquarters formulated approaches. Even where Pipfield staff appreciate the conceptual wisdom underlying the four approaches, their effective use is often stymied by funding limitations, pressures to get rid of funds quickly, staff capacity to address multiple demands, an emphasis on achieving rapid results. And that said, uh, yeah, and, and sorry, and concerns about risk. So pity the poor aid worker bombarded with a never ending alphabet soup of new initiatives from head office, but without the time to absorb or adapt any of them. So the team then came up with 12 recommendations, which were pretty sensible, you know, maximize field staff flexibility, increase the role for foreign service nationals, um, yeah, try and make policies and guidance documents uh, both accessible and translated into local languages. I mean, on one level, this is all pretty depressing, right? It feels like we are endlessly relearning the same lessons. And Larry Garber, I emailed him and he agreed. You know, he, he quoted the old French saying, uh, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Uh, the more things change, the more they remain the same. But on the other hand, at least it's great to see someone researching in a major donor and publishing how these initiatives are experienced on the ground. And back to being British and depressed, this seems like a nostalgic return to the days when government agencies were interested in learning learn anything at all. And on that grumpy Eeyore-ish note, I shall stop. The sun has come out. I'm going to go and do some shopping. Uh, talk next week. Uh, actually, probably the week after because I'm in Nairobi next week but uh, um, talk soon. Anyway, have a great weekend. Bye.